2: Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today, I have Dr. Alejandro De La Fuente and Dr. Ariella Gross, co-authors of Becoming Free, Becoming Black, Race, Freedom, and Law in Cuba, Virginia, and Louisiana, published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Dr. De La Fuente is the Robert Woods Professor of Latin American History and Economics, Professor of African and African American Studies, and the Founding Director of the Afro-Latin American Research Institute at Harvard University. Dr. Gross is the John B. and Alice R. Sharp Professor of Law and History, and the Co-Director of the Center for Law, History, and Culture at the University of Southern California's Gould School of Law. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. De La Fuente and Dr. Gross. Thank you. Good, good. And, you know, what, like I was telling y'all um, offline, it's it's a pleasure and an honor to have you on the podcast today. Um, you know, I've I've been reading the book and it's just incredible. And so I'm just, so, so excited uh, to get the discussion going. And so with that... I'll uh, shoot it to you, Dr. Gross. Um, We'll let you start off with this one. What are the origins of becoming free and becoming Black?
3: Uh, So Alejandro and I started, have been talking about uh, writing a comparative history of law, race, and slavery uh, for at least 10 years, uh, probably more. Um, But I'd say we got going in earnest about uh, six years ago. Um, and uh, and I think we both came to this from the study of uh, law, the law of slavery and race in particular locations in the Americas, but with comparative questions very much in mind. And um, I think we both recognized that we probably needed to work with someone who had the expertise on. You know different archives and and uh, um, languages and and just that local knowledge um, to do a a real kind of from the bottom up comparative history um, and and so that's how you know we started thinking about working uh, together. Um, But, but the book changed a lot, I think, from our original conception, which had been really much more comprehensive. Like, let's, you know, kind of compare all of the law of, of slavery, um, in these two places or three places, really. And, um, but as we were working on it and realizing that our key question how do you end up by 1860 with such different regimes of race in cuba as in virginia and louisiana that that question really was not answered by looking at all of the law of slavery but really looking at the law of freedom how people who were enslaved became free how they made claims on legal institutions to become free and how their lives are regulated once they became free and that it was there that societies were drawing the line between black and white
2: very good and um and and yeah like that that was something that I was really interested in learning about because I'm always interested in how how do projects come to be and um and one of the things I love is also you know, learning about, you know, co-authored pieces too, because that's obviously a very different um, process than if you're a single, um, if you're the author of a a book by yourself. Right. Um, And so with that too, um, you know, on that actual point, right, you both are well-published historians. So I'm also very highly interested to know how co-authoring a book Um, differs from writing a single author text and and specific to your experience with becoming free, becoming black.
1: So we, we get this question. um, We get this question all the time. And um, I think we, we, the first thing we always say is that it was actually easier than we expected uh, uh, initially. The, the, by the time, the, the, the unfortunate thing is that the way academia is structured, and the way you know tenure clocks and tenure reviews and all these uh, things are structured, this kind of project is it's very difficult to do for uh, for junior scholars. Um, therefore, when the, by the time we came to the project, both Ariel and I had, as you as as you well said, uh, we both had. Uh, published widely, and we were both uh, advanced enough in our careers that we could take uh, we could take a risk. We could um, we could do something that I at least had had not really done before. Although I had worked in, in my Havana book, I had uh, I did work with a couple of collaborators who are acknowledged uh, as collaborators in the in the front page of that book. But this was a very different uh, project because we basically, by the time we got together, we both had interest on comparative uh, on comparative legal histories of slavery. We both were interested in in going outside our uh, the cases we knew best, uh, but we had not even done all the research yet. Uh, we had to do some primary research, not to mention the writing. So. Um, the, the way we did it was, um, we, we first wrote a couple of, um, of papers. The first one was, a was a paper that was something of a literature review on comparative, um, legal histories of race and slavery in the Americas. Uh, we then published a couple of additional articles together. And I think those articles gave us an opportunity to, you know, learn about each other and, um, develop um, you know develop uh, uh, mechanisms develop routines that were later very useful for the book Um, now the book is a true collaboration it's a true collaboration on the front of research it's a true collaboration on on writing as well Um, we would not divide we never divided chapters according to areas so one of us uh, would take the lead in writing a first draft of a of a whole chapter, including the three cases that we study in the book, Virginia, Louisiana and and, and Havana and Cuba. And then we would uh that would um, start a process by which the chapter, the draft, would go back and forth uh among us um quite a few times. Um and that um at the end of the day, it's therefore very difficult to know who wrote exactly what. Um, because, um, you know, Ariella would send a first draft to me. I would, I would not edit or correct. I would rewrite the chapter and send it back to her. She would rewrite my rewriting and send it back to me. And after several of those rewrites, it was very difficult to say, or to you know to identify uh, who had written what, so it was a true collaborative uh, process, and and I must say that it was actually it was actually uh, I think it looks more painful from uh, from from without from outside than than it did for us. Uh, it was um, it was not a it was not a process without tensions because sometimes in those rewrites, um, you know, there were points that were contentious points, we did not always agree, on, even on some of the main arguments, and it took us a while, and it took us several rewrites to, uh, to reach a point in which we developed through conversation, through exchange, um, through uh, critical readings, we would develop uh, eventually uh, a common understanding and a common argument uh, about some of the processes that we were trying to describe.
3: And I would, I would just add to that. I, I think, you know, re- co authoring and, w- and one of the reasons it's something people tend to do later and, you know, not at the beginning of a career, it actually takes longer because of that, uh, because there is the revision and rethinking along the way. But I, I do feel as though it made our argument stronger, made the, research stronger even because there were points where challenging one another led us to think you know we need to know more about that we need to look at more cases we need to um find out more on on this particular question and um and so i i feel like that was actually a really healthy process the disagreements at least as much as the agreements but um you know, I also think it helps that neither of us is really one, one of those people who's very wed to their particular words. And um, I, we were on a panel with another co-authoring team where where they said, you know, it became very contentious at the very end, you know, more contentious over time and very contentious at the very end as the and these are the final words. And I felt like it was the complete opposite that by the end, we were really, you know, all the disagreements had been resolved. and that for the most part, when it came to particular words, we're both happy to be edited and and are very attached to our own, you know particular phrasing.
1: The the process of uh, you know the uh, ch- turning the disagreements into an opportunity, I I, th- I think made a big difference as as Ariela suggests because we, you know when you when you write something on your own you know you read it and you you may give it to a, to a few colleagues friends to take a look at to give you opinions. But here we're talking about something different. We were uh, we were rewriting each other, and therefore we were basically telling each other, "No, you didn't get this right. No, I don't agree with this." And as Ariela mentioned, that forced us to it forced us to refine the arguments so that we could defend our own positions with each other, and and in the process, I I would describe that as intellectually. Fun. I mean, I, I had a good time. I mean, if you had asked me in the middle of it, maybe I would have told you something different. <laughs> but um, but the, the way I recall this was as a, as a true exhilarating intellectual experience because I I had someone who was reading this very carefully and you know when when she didn't agree with something she would. She would articulate uh, an alternative argument, an alternative vision, and in order to to contest that, or in order to uh, supersede that, or in order to engage with that, you had to you had to basically bring yourself to uh, to the level required to articulate uh, an alternative argument. So uh, you know, it, it was actually a great process intellectually.
2: And that's great to learn as uh as a as someone you know knee deep in graduate study it, it helps him to to look through the weeds and see there is hope for collaboration at some point <laughs> and so um hearing your uh your jubilation uh really is 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 really uh awesome um and it's really good to know and with that specific to the book i did have a a, a very very important question to ask y'all. You focus on Cuba, Virginia, and Louisiana, and you you focus on them as prime locations to study race, freedom, and the law. But but let me ask y'all why did you ended why did y'all end up choosing Cuba, Virginia, and Louisiana specifically and especially because of um you know Cuba has Havana and Virginia is mostly you know a lot of the whole state. Or, colony, depending on the time frame, and Louisiana with New Orleans. so I was very interested to, to learn, you know why did you choose those three specific areas?
3: Um, yeah, I so um, I think there there are uh, a few reasons why these three places made sense. Uh, we We started with uh, thinking about um, Cuba and Virginia, which had been a kind of Classic comparison uh, of, you know, two plantation societies uh, from a, a Spanish and a British tradition. Um, it was, her, you know, Herbert Klein had done that comparison, and 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 there's been, in general, in the United States, as you know, a, a lot of focus on Virginia as sort of um, a birthplace of plantation slavery, and we really wanted to add louisiana both for the you know french legal tradition of of its earliest settlers but also because it's such an interesting hybrid legally it, you know cha- and culturally right changes hands from french to spanish to american or us and um, and also it's kind of a crossroads. So New Orleans is a place where people from Havana are coming to and leaving from, and they're going from Saint-Domingue to uh, New Orleans, sometimes through Havana. And, uh, and so there is also a lot of really interesting kind of exchange. And although we really wanted to keep the comparative framework for thinking about these legal regimes, it's also i i think a transnational story it's a it's it, it's not looking at each of these places as hermetically sealed you know uh comparators but rather as three locations in uh in this wider world that has a lot of connections
2: and and i th- i thought it was very interesting too because i you know i'm love comparative stuff. And, and and so I was just really interested um, to, to, to know why, because I, what I enjoyed the most about the the comparison that y'all bring up between Cuba, Virginia, and Louisiana um, is not only the the way that things change hands, as far as like, you know, especially somewhere like Louisiana, but how throughout it all, I didn't get lost. Because that's the, that's the other thing I always worry about sometimes about reading comparative work is, will there ever come a time when I get lost In the comparison, I guess is the best way to say. But thankfully, to all y'all listening and who are going to buy this book from Cambridge University Press, you will not get lost. You will get. It will be never a time that you will. Um, But uh, with that, one of the other important terms that y'all use throughout the book um, is the term uh, manumission, and I think that you know, as scholars and and such who who write about slavery regimes, understanding what manumission means in specific context and, and, and broad context, I think is important for those who are going to read the book too. So can you all define how you, um, can you define what manumission is and why uh, it's an important aspect of your comparative study?
1: So manumission is really, um, it's really a the right that a slave owner um Has to um, give freedom to an enslaved person. Um, So manumission is frequently presented as as a slave right, but in in fact, we are talking if we're talking about uh, about the law uh, and about how this uh, this uh, social process was understood. It's it was always really a slave a right of the slave owners. Now, manumission is uh, is absolutely central to our argument because um, uh, this right, the right of the slave owners to um, uh, to concede freedom to an enslaved person, this right is curtailed, is limited uh, fairly early. By that I mean the early 18th century, in some cases late 17th century, but certainly early 18th century is limited in... Um, in uh, Virginia and in Louisiana, where manumission requires uh, usually some form of official um, approval, and it's never limited uh, in Cuba. So one of the questions that we need to grapple with, that we need to deal with, is why uh, manumission is uh, is never um, legally curtailed in Cuba. Now that's only one side. Of this story. In fact, our emphasis is placed not on slave owners, uh, the right of slave owners to give quote unquote freedom, but rather our emphasis is placed on how enslaved people try to um, uh, build on that, uh, on that legal possibility. And to make claims to their freedom. What kind of strategies, initiatives did enslaved people undertake in order to escape uh to escape slavery? And here the stories of these three jurisdictions are very different. But the main distinction by far, by far, is the is the distinction between Havana and Virginia and Louisiana. Oh, Havana on the one hand and Virginia and Louisiana on the other hand. Now, so by the time of the Age of Revolution, by the 1760s and 1770s, Havana has a much larger population of free people of color than either um, Louisiana or um, or Virginia, and the explanation that we advance in the book has nothing to do with um, you know some special Iberian cultural predisposition to freedom or a more humane attitude towards slaves or any of that, it is the fact that manumission in the, in the Iberian uh, world was not tied to uh, race-making efforts. Manumission was a traditional um, legal possibility in Iberia that was applied to enslaved people of various origins and backgrounds. Uh, you know people uh, muslims christians people from the eastern mediterranean whereas manumission in virginia and louisiana get linked from almost from the very beginning although not quite in the case of uh, of virginia um to race making efforts in other words if you want to really create a perfect world of uh, enslaved africans and free Europeans or free whites or people of European descent, then the very possibility of black freedom um, complicates, negates, um, creates, um, uh, distorts that perfect world. If you want to create a, a racial order in which blacks means enslavement and white means freedom, then free blacks, free people of color, are uh, a problematic intermediate group that is, be- is best avoided that's what virginia and louisiana do with uh, you know fairly brutal uh, success uh in the 18th century in cuba on the other hand by the 1770s uh about 15 or 16% of the total population of the colony is composed by free people of color And that, in our view, makes an enormous difference in how uh, legal regimes concerning slaves then evolve into the 19th century.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person go to shopify.com slash system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com slash system
2: and and that is something that I I thought was very interesting and, and I highlighted it um, in my own reading um, kind of like the, the the pushback right that, that you're that you're speaking about um, in terms of you know the 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 I wouldn't say it's a consensus, but, you know, the, the popular imagination that um, things are just, you know, quote, unquote, easier maybe through the Iberian um, context. So so that was a part that I, I was very uh, important. I'm very happy, rather, uh, that you that you highlighted. Um, and so a question I had and as well, the 18th century plays a major part in your story. Right. It almost seems like the nexus point. Um specifically about the 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 way that um, racial distinctions became stronger and firmer uh, through legal regulation. And so can you tell us why the 18th century was so important for building the connection between race and enslavability?
3: Yeah, I I would pick up on uh, what Alejandro was talking about in terms of the age of revolution. I think you know, the middle chapter of our book, which focuses on this period that we date as, you know, starting in the 1760s. And there's a very particular moment in Louisiana, because uh, Louisiana changes hands from the uh, French to the Spanish um, in 1763. Um, And uh, and goes really, we argue all the way through uh, the 1820s, and and um, and we take that chapter up to 1830, um, because it's it's that time in the late 18th century and early 19th century when you know, ironically, of course, the the United States um, has a revolution, becomes a republic, but uh, and. And northern states begin gradual emancipation of enslaved people. Um, But, you know, historians have talked about a a contagion of liberty, right? This idea that all around uh, the Americas, people, enslaved people are making claims for freedom. They're rebelling for freedom in in Haiti, which strikes terror in the hearts of, of all of these slave owners around the, the um, Americas as well. Uh, it inspires rebels in and, and, uh, other locations in the Americas. It inspires rebellions. It inspires anti-slavery activists. Um, and, uh, and so you have this moment, and, and um, man, both manumission, self-purchase, freedom suits, uh, increase exponentially in all three of the places that we're talking about. It's most dramatic probably in Louisiana, where as soon as the Spanish arrive, um, enslaved people get the news about um, Spanish forms of legal self-purchase, at coartación, and start, you know, bringing cases and and um, uh, winning them. And, uh, but it's also remarkable in Virginia, um, which, uh, passes laws that not only make it easier for an enslaved person to be come free, but even to, uh, have a free lawyer, uh, to bring a freedom suit. Um, and, Uh, And so you could imagine that story being, uh, oh, wow, the importance of the age of revolution really is just this rising tide of freedom and emancipation. But of course, we know that isn't the case, that in fact, um, it's the era of the entrenchment of plantation slavery. It's the rise of the cotton gin and the cotton economy is the late 18th, early 19th century. So um, <laughs> that's happening at the same time as the expansion of the of the population of free people of color. And although in many ways, this is a moment where Virginia and Louisiana look most like Cuba, we argue it's where the roots where the where the seeds are planted for this, enormous crackdown on free people of color and on manumission that comes after 1830. It, because of the political connection that's drawn between manumission and race-making, which as Alejandro says, never happens in Cuba. But um, if you look, for example, at the petitions that Ordinary Virginians are bringing to white Virginians are bringing to the the General Assembly in Virginia in um, the early 19th century uh, regarding free people of color. They're saying, "Oh, you know, you all of this emancipation needs to stop," um, and they're calling individual manumission. Partial emancipation, and they're connecting it to what they call general emancipation. So they're they're drawing this connection where they're politicizing um, individual emancipation and suggesting this is going to lead to the the end of slavery. It's going to threaten all of the institution of slavery. Um, where in a more you know in a in the uh, Spanish Empire that isn't. Um, in individual manumission is not seen as bringing down the whole system, and and in part that's because of um, the the Republican ideals uh, that are being um, uh, used um, in a place like Virginia in this you know white supremacist way connecting white freedom and Republican values to um, uh, black enslavement and degraded status so so it's uh, it's kind of I think ironic from the u.s perspective that that I, that it Republican politics is playing such a part in it small are Republicans
1: you know one one way to to also think about this to follow up uh, very briefly on on Ariella's um, on Ariella's point is that um although during the age of revolution manumission rates actually grow or appear to grow in across these jurisdictions, the meanings of black freedom are very different uh, as she said in in a place like Virginia, black freedom is immediately perceived as a as a threat. It's a perceived as a threat to, to the established order and to Republican politics because black freedom in a place like Virginia and increasingly in Louisiana uh, after, uh, in the 19th century is tied to black citizenship. Whereas in Havana, in Cuba, black freedom is not tied to black citizenship. Black freedom leads to free blacks are not uh, are not seen as equal citizens with equal political rights. They enter a society of uh, where racial and other social hierarchies are pronounced, and where manumission is not is not tied to um, to, to revolutionary ideas of uh, equality and fraternity. Um, manumission in Havana is a fee it's, it's it's a it's, it's a legal practice of the ancien regime it's a traditional legal practice that has nothing to do with black citizenship and, and black equality
2: and and actually like that is that that's so very important because you know when you're talking about the age of revolution and you're talking about also what happens after it you know you're starting to see uh, larger uh larger communities of, of free black people uh, as well. And, you know, that actually leads into my, my next question. And uh, Dr. De La Fuente, you can take this one on uh, first. Um, you highlight how, um, you know, the most significant difference among, you know, these jurisdictions concern the size and importance of their communities of free people of color. Um, and that was a quote from uh, page 72. Why were the surrounding communities of free people of color so significant to the divergent legal regimes? Of manumission and freedom and law in Cuba, Virginia, and Louisiana.
1: Well, the, to um, you know the, the the dangers that we were talking about before about black citizenship. Um, that danger felt to many white people in Virginia and 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 also uh, by the eighteen tens and nineteen twenties in Louisiana. That danger felt increasingly real and large and concrete as those communities grew, which they did grow. And it was a significant growth, although it was from rather modest beginnings. Uh, but these communities did grow significantly uh, between the 1770s and the 1820s. So that danger felt very real and very concrete uh, to many white uh Residents who began, in fact, to advocate not only uh, for uh, legal measures that would um, preclude manumission, that would preclude um, these partial emancipations, as as Ariella uh, mentioned, but that would, in fact, even remove free blacks from their midst, that would simply make it impossible. For uh, free people of color uh, to live uh, and to uh, build communities and families and lives uh, in their places of birth, uh, you know, and that's the origin of all these uh, colonization uh, processes and initiatives that we that we discuss um, in the book. But the size of the community uh, of the Community of Free People of Color matters also in in rather concrete and consequential ways, which is that this community provided resources, support, um, legal knowledge, uh, access for enslaved people to, uh, to escape slavery. Therefore, the, the size of that community um, goes a long way explaining how, um, and, with, and the frequency with which enslaved people uh, could escape uh, from slavery, could you know, use different uh, uh, legal resources and legal opportunities, fabricate legal opportunities in order to escape from slavery, either by purchasing their own freedom, uh, um, you know, finding the resources to to pay their their manumission price, or by perhaps claiming, as they did in Virginia and Louisiana, that they had ancestors, female ancestors, who were not enslaved Africans, but who were either Indians or free people, and therefore that they should be that they should be free. So the the existence of this community is quite important, and here. Um and this goes back to your previous question about the 18th century um here you know, there is already a massive difference between Havana uh on, 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 on that front on the, on this particular but rather important uh point there's a massive difference between Havana and you know Louisiana and Virginia uh, by the 1770s Havana has already has a much larger uh, community of uh Of free people of color. Now, slave owners and colonial authorities in early 19th century Cuba uh, were not particularly uh, happy about this community. They, in fact, did their very best to delimit uh, the social standing and, and, and the opportunities of this community as much as possible. But there are in in several remarkable private documents you see the uh, the acknowledgement that there was little they could do about it because that community was just so large that it was simply impossible to um, to take uh, to destroy the community and to take the rights to which they were uh, they felt entitled that it would have put in danger the whole colonial order uh, to do so. So in, in you are right in you are you are quite right in in highlighting this because it's actually one of our key arguments in the book.
2: And and you know I know we're getting closer to uh our end time so I wanted to transition from there um to 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 look at more of uh looking forward questions and kind of more introspective. So uh Dr. Gross I I'll shoot this one out uh, to you first. Um I guess you, this is one of my favorite questions, right? What did you learn about yourselves because of this process of of creating, uh, of writing the book uh, collaboratively, becoming free and becoming black? What what, what did you all uh, learn about yourselves because of this process?
3: Um, that's a great question. I I think it made me um, it it certainly made me question some of my uh, prior so. Uh, the book that I wrote before this on my, by myself um, was a book called What Blood Won't Tell, A History of Race on Trial in America. And What Blood Won't Tell looked at trials of racial identity uh, where courts are trying to figure out whether someone is Black or white or Indian. And it argued um, that over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries um, that these contestations over race in court um, really helped constitute um, both uh, blackness and whiteness in America, but particularly the linkage between whiteness and citizenship in in U.S. law. And um, but but a big piece of it for me was about discovering the all of these middle grounds between black and white. And, um, you know, Groups like the Melungeons and you know, these entire communities of racially ambiguous people in the United States, um, who who lived with kind of contested racial identities for a long time, and um, and one of the reasons I was so interested in the comparison with Cuba was because traditionally the the comparison between Latin America and the United States had always been contrasting the fluidity and multiple racial identities of Latin America with the kind of black and white one drop rule of the United States. And, and, but since I had been arguing, no, actually the United States wasn't just black and white. um, How would that look to me when I started to look comparatively? And, um, and I think it did it did, I, I mean, some, uh, it, it strengthened some of what I had um, thought about U.S. history before, and but it also challenged some of it. That is, comparatively, um, as much as I want to emphasize, right, the claims to citizenship that people of color were making in the United States and the um, and the extent that that people did live between black and white and that um and the the challenges to that black and white world, by contrast to the the possibilities or opportunities that were open to people of color in Cuba, I had to acknowledge that there were less in the united states um and uh and so, um, and, and that the, what I had argued before, that the real operation of race and the law was this linkage between whiteness and citizenship, I ended up feeling even more strongly that that, that is what really defined the United States, both Virginia and by 1860 Louisiana, although I think it took a lot longer there. But what defined ra- the racial regime, in contrast to Cuba, was this linkage between citizenship and whiteness, and and that is, you know, a, a, a very it's a tragic and. Um, you know today, I would say, even enraging story because it's not just a sad story about race in the united states um and and one i I keep thinking is is still so present with us today um,
2: mm-hmm.
3: so I think that that's sort of what I learn from from this i'm a hundred percent.
1: Well, you know, I certainly, I certainly um, share what 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 you've said, Ariel. I would only add that one thing that you know, we we both came to this project with a with a, a fairly well-informed suspicion, but a suspicion nonetheless. That um, you know that. That national historiographies only take you that far in the understanding of uh, of the creation of uh, racial regimes across the Atlantic, and that it was, and that you know, it was that is, it was. We had the suspicion, we had the, the urge to go outside our comfort zones and to explore, to seriously explore other cases. You know, writing this book confirmed that. Um, to me beyond any doubt that, um, that it is important for scholars of, uh, of slavery, race, the law, to, uh, to um, contest, um, ignore, transcend uh, national boundaries, to learn from other, from other places and to become familiar with other historiographies um I think that's uh, one, one area that is increasingly certainly reflected in my own teaching and in how I think about these things. Um, although at the same time, doing actual research um, in, in several locations at once and doing the kind of comparative work we, we did in the book over time, you know, for several centuries, is a daunting task uh, for, a, for an
2: individual. Absolutely, absolutely, and I, and I definitely think that you know I'm always interested to learn like how people how people are changed by the projects that they that they do, um, and also this would be the last one. This would be the one that we'll go out on. Um, as scholars, right, your work means a lot to many people, especially as we try to understand and break down uh, the 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 history of race, especially um, in, in our world, and so. As scholars that do this work, what motivates you to continue doing this work?
1: the um, um Ariella was talking about um historians always uh write about the present in some ways right um and mm-hmm. uh, Ariella was talking about our very particular present. I always say that we should not forget that we began working on this project um you know when before before the White House was transformed into the White House. Um, it was a different moment, but still in that moment under President Barack Obama, um, you know, the, the, the salience of race, uh, the social effects of racism and racist poli- uh, policies, um, the enduring uh, legacies of enslavement, uh, racial discrimination, these are things that we, both Ariel and I had experienced differently. I grew up in in Cuba, but we both had experienced this. And I think that at least on my end, but she and I have talked about this many times. This is is a major motivation to try to understand how our current understandings of blackness and whiteness um, were historically produced. These things are not natural we frequently say that race is a social construct. But frankly, that has become almost a cliche that has no substance, no meaning, unless you actually look at the process of of how that construction took place. And that, in a sense, is what we try to do uh, in the book.
3: Yeah. um, You know, I I said that... Earlier that you know the moment is not only tragic but enraging. I just um today keep thinking about George Floyd and um you know the people who die every day from racism in this country and um and I think that's you know that effort to to understand that history to bring it front and center to try to break that equation of whiteness and citizenship to make real, um, the, the, all of the ways that, um, that, that history continues to play out. I think that's, you know, our job today. So, um, so we have to, we have to keep doing it even on, on days that, (laughs) you know, you think, oh my gosh, (laughs) how do people keep going? Um,
2: and that and that's and that's correct. Right. You know, that's the thing. The the work, um, the work that we all do, you know, as, as Dr. De La Fuente said, you know, it has a lot to do with our present, despite, you know, a lot of our work um, being centuries uh, well before now. Um, but it's always good to learn from scholars who are at your levels uh, what it is that keeps you going and what helps to motivate you as you, Dr. Gross, brought up. In the tormental, in the times of torment, um, that it seems that we're that that we're in um, that that are not cyclical. They just are ones that sometimes have a higher um, uh, uh, visibility level. Which, considering our date May twenty seventh of twenty twenty when we're recording this, seems to be one of those days and um, times. But uh, hopefully, to the listening audience who uh, just listened to this interview. Who are listening to this interview? Uh, hopefully, this is a phenomenal conversation that you can learn from and, and build from through the the phenomenal uh, information that's contained within Dr. Alejandro De La Fuente and Dr. Ariela Gross's co-authored book, "Becoming Free: Becoming Black, Race, Freedom, and Law in Cuba, Virginia, and Louisiana," uh, published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Um, and and I want to thank both, both of you, Dr. De La Fuente and Dr. Gross, for coming on to the podcast today because our conversation has been incredible.
1: Thank you, Adam.
3: Thanks, Adam. Really enjoyed it.
2: Very good. And so, folks, once again, my name is Adam McNeil, uh, co-host of New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Please rate us and review us. Please show us and tell us how we are doing. And please also buy this phenomenal book and also buy more books from Cambridge University Press. And Dr. uh, Dr. De La Fuente is also an amazing uh, co-editor of the Afro-Latin American uh, uh, History Series at Cambridge University Press. And uh, we have some phenomenal books coming out from there. Hi, Dr. Barragon. I know you're listening. Um, And so I know that uh, you guys are going to support, as you always, always do, And thank you so much for your support. And once again, please rate us or review us wherever you get your podcasts. And so it's over and out time, y'all. Thank you so much from New Books in African-American Studies. Adam McNeil, over and out.